Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Welcome to our first weekly podcast. Each week we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site, and I'm joined tonight by two of our Carson City reporters. First, Riley Snyder. Hi, Riley. Hey, John. And Megan Messerly is here, too. Hi, Megan. Hi, John. Our third capital reporter, Michelle Rendells, is not here. She would like to be here, but she's at a conference in Miami, and we're very, very jealous because here we are in Carson City. So, Riley and Megan, let's talk about, first, what happened this week in Carson City. And let me start with you, uh, Riley. You covered some education stuff that's kind of interesting uh, that has to do with the higher ed system and Assemblyman Elliot Anderson, among others, wants to change uh, the way that the system is 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 uh, uh, organized. Talk a little bit about what happened. Yeah, so I'm going to grossly oversimplify the backstory, but Bethany Barnes, a reporter with the Las Vegas Review Journal, did a series of articles about um, the 2013-2014 interim when uh, interim legislative committee was going over redoing the funding formula for higher education. And she found that um, there was a report that was put out by a think tank that was kind of fabricated that Clay had like a big role in writing and he kind of sort of misled legislators. So that led... This is the chancellor of the, of the, of the higher ed system at the time, Dan Clay. The then chancellor. Right, who later was forced out because of some of this. Yeah, well, he retired early, I think. Retired yeah. early, yes. That's always the euphemism, yes. Yeah. So when all this went down, um, Elliot Anderson, who's a Democratic assemblyman, and Joyce Woodhouse, who's a Democratic senator... They came out, they put out a statement saying we're going to really focus on NG reform this session. So there's been a lot of bills um, uh, dealing with that. One was heard on Monday. It's a bill that's being brought by a couple former community college presidents that wants to basically break away. um, I called it in a tweet, I called it like Brexit for community colleges, um, but would create basically a new system for community colleges. Uh, Anderson has a bill that would take um, some constitutional constitutional authority Mm -hmm out from under the regions and put it in statute. And then he had a bill today um, that was adding some whistleblower protections. It would give the regions like a yearly salary to make them more of a full-time thing. Right now they get $80 per meeting um, and just some other NG reform changes. But what Anderson has kind of found and why he's bringing that constitutional change is it's hard because, you know, there's a provision in the Constitution that has to do with the Board of Regents overseas uh, universities in the state. And, you know, as much as the state legislature tries, they can't circumvent the state constitution. So in his world, I think this is going to be a process that takes more than one session to figure out, but there's definitely been like a movement, uh, especially this week. A lot of these bills have come to a head and had hearings. Megan, do you think we need to tell people what Riley's talking about when he talks about Enshi? Do, do we know? Because they're hearing Enshi and they're thinking, who is she? I know, Enshi. What, what is Enshi, Riley? Tell us. Enshi is my daughter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what is Enshi, Riley? Enshi is the Nevada system of higher education. It's the giant governing octopus that covers UNR, UNLV, all the community colleges in the state. Um, they are governed by a board of regents. Uh, you probably vote for them every election. You probably don't know who they are because those races always fall under the radar. Um, but they are democratically elected. They cover the whole state. They meet about 11 to 12 times per year. They're the ones who deal with like contracts for, you know, the UNLV basketball coach, any athletic stuff. Mm -hmm. They, you know, will put the priority list together for new construction. So 
the like eighty four million dollar UNR engineering building was an NG priority. That's why that's high up on their list. That's why it's probably going to get built with budget money that's being approved this session. So I guess what what people listening to this might wonder, Riley, is that why does this, any of this matter to them? I mean, NG, the Nevada System of Higher Education, has been thought of as like this fourth branch of government. That's what Elliot Anderson has talked about and some others. They're embedded in the Constitution. That they shouldn't be there is, is what the argument is. How does this affect people's lives if this has changed? Well, it affects people's lives because, frankly, K-12 through education in the state is still pretty atrocious. A lot of kids have to go through community colleges before they get to a college or to get a two-year degree you know, to get a decent-paying job. And there's a lot of issues around like credit transfers, a lot of issues about, you know, are they getting the money they need to get these programs that'll get people jobs, you know, in either manufacturing or something that pays okay so you're not stuck working at a fast food restaurant for the next 40 years. Um, these are all big like conversations. They're structural level problems they're trying to deal with. So of course it's hard to deal with any sort of like group organization structure problem. Um, but yeah, it is important because, you know, we have a huge amount of like low wage uh, low income employees. I think a third of the state, um, but I might be getting this number wrong, like makes under $12 an hour. Like this affects a huge swath of people. And if they can get more money, if they can restructure it in a way that's going to help people, like that's good for Nevada. It's good for people who live here. You know, this seems to me, uh, Megan, fundamentally what we're trying to do uh, at the Nevada Independent as, as Riley's describing it, which is trying to, these kind of like abstruse abstract concepts that people don't really get, but that, that that affect their lives, right? Exactly. I think there's so much policy going on that you can kind of get lost in the weeds sometimes. So we forget how this sort of impacts people's day-to-day -day lives, you know, whether you're a student in the community college system or whether you're a professor or, you know, you're just an interested person in the community. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so talk about some of the stuff that, that you've been looking at, Megan, that fits into the same categories in terms of stuff that, you know, because we get in the weeds at, at, at the end in terms of looking at uh, issues but what we're trying to do is bring it home to people give us an example of something you covered that that may seem like something that you're covering in the weeds but that is really going to have a real impact on people's lives i'll just talk about weeds we can talk about the marijuana tax here <laughs> yeah we can talk about let's talk about that that pot hearing that we were in today in a senate revenue and economic development um there's a lot of different proposals on the table which is sort of where we're at right now is sort of everyone's throwing, you know, everything at the wall now that question two passed and we're trying to figure out, you know, what does implementing recreational marijuana look like? How are we going to tax it? What are we going to do with the revenue from those taxes? And that was the, the central conversation, you know, that came up. Um, Democratic Senator Julia Ratty, uh, she's putting forward this amendment, this sort of catch-all amendment to bring in a lot of the other ideas that different legislators have brought forward. She wants to put them all in one amendment and basically say, here's everything that's on the table. Let's have a point by, by point discussion, figure out what we want, figure out what we want, you know, retail taxes on recreational marijuana to look like and where we want that money to go. Um, for instance, the governor in his state of the state address proposed this 10% excise retail tax on recreational marijuana with the funds to go toward education. Um, Julie Ratty, separately from that, put in a BDR, a bill draft request, uh, to put a 10% tax on recreational marijuana, same kind of tax, but with the idea that that money would go to fund mental health services and law enforcement and things like that. Um, and she said today that she put that, that bill draft request in before she even knew what the governor's plan was. So now they're trying to figure out, well, how do we make that mesh? You know, how do we fund education? You know, do we need more mental health support? Do we need more law enforcement to 
deal with some of the maybe unintended consequences of passing recreational marijuana. So the question now is what does that look like? So in this proposed amendment, she suggested a 15% tax on recreational marijuana with 10%, the governor's 10% going to education, this 5% going to sort of mental health services and law enforcement and things like that. And obviously, that's still a more robust discussion that lawmakers are going to have. They didn't really get into the nitty gritties of that, what everyone would be comfortable with. There's some discussion about at what point do you tax marijuana so much that it becomes so expensive that people are going to turn to the black market. And there's a sort of 30% number that some of the marijuana um, lobbyists threw out there saying that if you tax something above 30%, that's when we start getting into this gray area of, well, are people going to start turning to the black market now because it's actually cheaper to buy off the black market than it is to get from these sort of legitimate retailers. But at that 30%, 30% threshold, people sort of feel comfortable paying maybe a little bit more than you would on the black market just to know that they're getting it from a legal grower, you know, an, an authorized dealer, and there's some sort of comfort in that. So there's just sort of a lot of questions swirling in the air right now and not necessarily a clear direction about which way we're going to go. You know, it's interesting, Megan, because there's a lot of dynamics going on here, and you mentioned some of them, that Governor Sandoval put in his budget this 10% tax. Governor Sandoval was opposed to legalizing marijuana. Uh, and you have Julia Ratty, who, in case people listening don't know, has this is her first session. You know, she's a freshman. She's taken the place of a legendary senator, Debbie Smith. Uh, she was essentially handpicked by the family uh, to, to take this. She's super, super smart. She's from local government, but she understands all these issues. She's taken the lead on a lot of a lot of issues, in, including this one. But these are these are serious pu public policy questions in the sense of. Should it be a 10% tax? And the, to hear people go up and testify, as some of these marijuana people did, well, we want to make sure that we're doing okay vis-a-vis -vis the black market, right? And admission that there's a black market. And then you have this thing that's going on way above this, which is the Attorney General of the United States, Jeff Sessions, essentially saying he might come in and crack down uh, on this. So we don't know whether this business is going to exist for 10 years or 10 minutes. Uh, right. And so they have all these complex public policy questions side, plus they have to balance the budget. Right. Yeah, exactly. And we don't know what the federal government's going to do. And actually, Riley, you wrote about an interesting letter because Republicans are looking for some guidance from Attorney General Sessions about what's going to happen. You know, should we be building our budget around marijuana when, you know, Sessions has obviously expressed some some discomfort with that, and, and we don't have a clear direction about what exactly the federal government's going to do. Well, let's talk yeah. about that since yeah. you bring it up. Riley, you, you broke this story. We're taping this on a Thursday night in case people are wondering, because we keep referring to things that are happening today or tomorrow or yesterday. And you, you broke the story about Paul Anderson, who was the Republican leader of the Assembly, and Ben Kiefer, who was the assistant uh, minority leader of, of the Senate, both Republicans. And they essentially want to know what? They want to know, like, what are the feds going to do with marijuana? So uh, Anderson actually did a sit down with reporters today, and I got a chance to ask him about this a little more in detail, because um, I had found it inter interesting that Kefer, who is the assistant minority Senate leader, uh, but Michael Roberson is the main minority Senate leader. Why wasn't his name on the letter? He said it was because Kefer's on the budget committee. That's kind of like more his wheelhouse. But now I asked uh, Assemblyman Anderson, um, you know, what happens if they do crack down? What happens if we can't take this money that we're kind of building into the budget for recreational marijuana. And he said, oh, I don't know. You know, that's why we sent the letter. We got to figure out like, 
eliminate as many uncertainties as possible before um, the economic forum happens in May where state lawmakers figure out how much money they're going to have to spend and then they have to approve the budget bill um, in June. So they sent well, Let's talk about this because some people listening might not know what the economic forum is. There, the, the way that the legislature is set up, and this has gone on for several legislatures now, is there's this outside group that essentially says to the legislature, here's how much money you have to spend, right? Yeah, it's a group of five outside economists. They meet on May 1st and they tell them, here's how much money you're going to have. And so I've heard from some lawmakers that they think it's going to be a good percentage. I've even heard suggestions that maybe we won't need the marijuana tax because tax revenues will be so high because... How much does it bring in the marijuana tax? I believe it's $69 million um, either in the first year or in the biennium. I'd have to go back and check the numbers, but it's a a significant amount. Essentially all goes toward education, correct? Yeah. And this gets into what Megan was talking about was that there's these six bills out there of like, here's how we're going to tax marijuana and here's where the money's going to go. So... Uh, Sandoval has 75% of it going to schools, 25% going to public health programs. Uh, Ratty and her initial bill had 50% going to schools, um, or maybe a different breakdown, 50% going to the counties. So like, there's a lot of different ways and a lot of different ways people want to spend the money you get from taxing pot. But you have to be able to like sell a pot to be able to tax it in the first place, which is why they have to ask Jeff Sessions. And you know, we asked uh, people with the attorney general's office, we asked the governor's office when Sean Spicer brought this up in um, a daily press briefing that they were going to go after marijuana or suggested it at least. And, you know, they just don't know. It's kind of the downside of being a tiny little Western state far away from D.C. is that you kind of just hear things and you have to kind of react. But we're building the budget on this. So I I definitely understand why it's a concern. It makes sense why they sent the letter. And it's interesting, I think, Megan, that that Julia Ratty wants to take uh, a different tack in some ways, right, than, than, than the governor and, and is keeping the options open. And this doesn't just affect recreational marijuana because Sessions essentially, if he were to go, th- he, he hates marijuana. He has said people who smoke marijuana are bad, essentially. He could get rid of the medical marijuana industry. And you have a lot of these, I think maybe, maybe people don't realize this, maybe we can talk about this a little bit. You have the medical marijuana industry, which wants to capitalize on the money to be made from the recreational marijuana industry, coming to these hearings and saying, hey, tax us, no problem, right? Mm-hmm. It's true, yeah. There's some question. So first of all, there's some question about what taxing medical marijuana should look like compared to recreational marijuana. Should there be one standard? Would that make it easier? Um, so that's one question. And then, like you mentioned, there is this desire to be taxed that somehow taxing, building your budget around marijuana legitimizes you and sort of gives marijuana a permanent place in the state. Um, versus this sort of, you know, elusive outside industry that just does its own thing. You know, basing your budget on it really does bring it, bring that sense of legitimacy to it. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we should wrap up our discussion of this first week, and then we'll move on to some other things, uh, uh, Riley, with uh, 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 this hearing that was held on, 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 on uh, energy. And energy may be the most complex issue that any of us are covering this time, right? There's so many dynamics. And Chris Brooks, who is an assemblyman who knows this, issue inside. Now, I think was really surprised by what happened. He has, he has proposed this increase in what's known as the renewable uh, portfolio standard, uh, bringing it all the way up to 80% uh, in, in a while. And suddenly, out of the woodwork, right, you have Envy Energy, uh, the monopoly for now, uh, coming up with these amendments. You have the gaming industry uh, and individual gaming companies coming out uh, against this amendment. What happened there? So, to give a tiny little amount of backstory, not to get into legislative history because it's really boring, but uh, basically 
Chris Brooks got a subcommittee to deal with energy issues. He held hearings on seven different bills that then got referred to a bigger committee. So they had testimony pro against everyone got their comments on the record. He's like on his second amendment to the bill. So he's made some changes. So I think what took him back was the fact that Envy Energy came in with their amendment, which we had known, which we had reported about that Michelle Rendell's and I had written about. But then all these gaming companies came in and said, no, we can't support this. It doesn't make any sense. So uh, Virginia Valentine with the Nevada Resorts Association came up and said, we can't support it as written. Wynn came up and said, we can't support it. Sands, who are the people who funded the energy deregulation ballot question and basically uh, paid, I think, Switch paid some of it and MGM paid some of it. But they said, yeah, this is something we can't support this session. We want to tie it into energy deregulation uh, in a future session. So, you know, I ran into him in the hallway uh, afterwards and he just mentioned like, well, you know, at least they're public about it now. They're not trying to go behind my back. Why? I guess what people might wonder is that why are these big companies opposed to this? What's the issue for them? So what Brooks's bill does is that it moves the renewable portfolio standard, which is the amount of electricity generated in the state that has to be generated by renewable sources, from its current goal, which is 25% by 2025, to a goal of 80% by 2040, but a mandate of 50% by 2030. So Envy Energy doesn't like that mandate because it ramps it up pretty quickly. They say we need time to, you know, put shovels in the ground and build solar facilities. We don't know what's going to happen with question three if energy deregulation goes through. But they're also question three, in case people don't know, was the Energy Choice Initiative, which passed overwhelmingly, has to pass one more time. Uh, and, and there's a lot of pressure on the legislature to do something about it before they're mandated to do something by this initiative. Yeah, which is an issue the casinos brought up. And another issue they brought up um, was I'd have to go back and check the bill language, but I believe the renewable portfolio standard would apply to companies that have left Envy Energy's market. So there's a couple of large companies like Barrick, like uh, Caesars is one, Wynn is one that have left Envy Energy as a customer. They paid a giant exit fee and they're basically buying their power on the open market. So I think they have a concern that they might have to buy 80% or 50%, whatever the mandate is, renewably generated power. Is that going to be more expensive for them? Most likely, which I think is a concern they've brought up. I think when the wind lobby has brought up constitutional concerns with forcing a, a private company to do that. So, you know, generally when the big gaming interest in the state come out against your bill, like it doesn't have the best... Uh, path forward, but it'll be interesting to see what happens. And I think a lot of people respect Brooks. He's been a lobbyist on energy issues in the building for close to a decade. He's been into net metering and rooftop solar for like the past 15 years. He's a giant nerd about this stuff. So we'll we'll kind of see where it all shakes out. Are, are you a giant nerd about this kind of stuff too, Riley? Not to the level of Chris Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> but but you can only with, aspire to one. But day you did do sit that. with him for many hours talking about this issue, and mm -hmm. I, and I hope people will actually go on the Nevada Independent and read. Uh, the great explainer uh, th that we have in that. All right, so let's let's talk about where we are now. We're at the halfway point uh, 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 of the session uh, th this week. So let's let's talk about Megan. You you are you have not been up covering an entire session uh, uh, before. Um, what are your impressions of the first half uh, uh, of this session in general, in terms of the rhythms, in terms of what people are saying about about the session, and what you're feeling about it? That is a great question. I feel like a lot of people have asked me that, like, what did you expect coming up here? And I always tell them I didn't really have a lot of preconceptions. I don't know. I just try to keep an open mind and see what but happens. But you covered politics in the yeah. state, so you had some sense of, the, sure. of what this was like. Sure, yeah. I think for me, you know, it was sort of, you know, there's a lot of intensity at the beginning, and everyone's really excited to be here. And then I feel like 
I don't know, it felt like for a couple of weeks, we kind of just like settled into the slow pace of, you know, a couple of hearings here and there, but, you know, Fridays were pretty light and the agendas were pretty light. And now we're getting into this sort of, you know, frenetic rush. And I think you really, you know, feel the pressure in the hearings to get through things, you know, the, the committee chairs are being more adamant about their, you know, if you're just gonna say what the person before you said, just say ditto, and they really mean it, you know, and they're saying it more than ever now. Um, so I think that for me, you know, I just see, seeing how we went from sort of intensity to sort of slowing down, and now with this upcoming committee deadline, the sort of pressure again, and these, you know, packed committee hearings, and, you know, it feels like some of these really nuanced policy issues are, you know, you don't even really have the time to get into them. Um, I was in a hearing recently on pharmaceutical legislation, and, you know, we, I think it was a two and a half hour hearing, and it still felt like it just barely scratched the surface. Um, so I think that's, that's been interesting for me to see. You know, it's interesting you mentioned, I want to ask you about that and, and another issue that you've covered, but the whole issue of, of the pharmaceutical industry, this has become kind of a high-profile issue here in a way that it hasn't uh, in, in, in the past. You have uh, a, a freshman Democratic senator, Ivana Cancela, pre presenting a bill that ostensibly is a, is, is a price controls bill for diabetes, but it does a lot more than that. The pharmaceutical industry sent a, a representative from D.C. It was a pretty dramatic hearing. It looked like a rally that the Culinary Union, which is backing this bill and which Ivana Cancela used to work for, uh, uh, did this. this. This seems to me something that's, that's percolating that could become a big deal. Talk about that a little bit. Definitely, yeah. I think, I think we saw from when that bill was first introduced, I remember I did the story that the bill, a story the day the bill came out. And I remember, you know, I had I reached out to the pharmaceutical industry, you know, immediately they shot back and they were like, this is horrible, you know, legislation for X, Y, and Z. And some of their points have to do with, well, you know, is it really our fault? Do the insurance companies have a role in all of this? And sort of that's the argument they've been making in Nevada and everywhere else. But, you know, it is an issue, you know, with pharmaceutical related legislation, I think just healthcare related legislation in general, there's a lot of concerns about the Affordable Care Act and what's going to happen with that. And you know, what the future of healthcare looks like in the country. And one piece of that is the pharmaceutical industry. You know, I think a lot of people have seen drug prices go up. You know, if they've been regularly taking a certain type of medication over the years, they've seen costs go up and they want to know what to do about that. And the question is, where do you place the blame? You know, where do you start? How do you start tackling this problem? And Senator Kinsella has started with the pharmaceutical industry and in particular focusing on diabetes, right? Because it's this, you know, it's been around forever. It's one of those things that you, you know, you have to get your drugs. You know, there's no, there's no way around it. Affects it. so many people. Exactly. Too. Yeah. And it's, it's a huge, you know, a huge portion of the Nevada population either is diabetic or pre-diabetic. So it's an issue that affects a ton of people here in Nevada and, and across the country as well. Um, so she sort of picked this as her sort of starting point, but like you mentioned, the legislation does so much more. It creates this sort of quasi-lobbying registration system. You can think about it that way, but it would essentially require pharma pharmaceutical sales representatives to be licensed and submit these annual sort of lobbying reports of their activities with doctors. You know, are they whining and dining them? Are they buying them things? Who did they visit? Did they give them samples and that sort of information? And it's something that, you know, Chicago on a city level uh, recently enacted. 
it really hasn't been done statewide. So it's sort of a, an experiment of what that would look like. And obviously the pharmaceutical industry has a lot of concerns with that. Um, there's some other provisions too, just like healthcare nonprofits disclosing what kind of contributions they receive from pharmaceutical companies. So just trying to have some more transparency. And then she's also, you know, trying to implement these price controls on, on diabetes drugs. And what she says are, you know, sort of the, the drugs that have existed for years. She's not trying to cap the new innovative cutting edge drugs, but she wants the, you know, drugs that have existed for 95 years, you know, she thinks those should be the sort of same, same prices they've always been. You know, it's interesting, Riley, in the sense that the issue that Megan's talking about with the, with the pharmaceutical companies is like an easy, the Democrats, for people who don't know, took control of the legislature after having lost it. The Republicans controlled it in, in 2015. So they get control. So going against the pharmaceutical companies would seem like great politics for them. But this goes into, as we're talking about being at the halfway point and what, what's going to happen from, from, from here on out, is that they need to do something to get the governor to sign a bill like this and, 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 and other kinds of bills. And so you've been here before. Unlike Megan, you're a totally grizzled veteran <laughs> of, of 24 years old or whatever. Are you 25 now? 24 still. You're still 24. And so it's on the record, too. You're an old man. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so so I, I guess what I'm wondering is, is, is talk about your experience some people would say, oh, they're just trying to make a political stunt here with going after the pharmaceutical companies. They don't think the governor's going to sign this. This goes with a lot of different things that the Democrats are trying to do, some of which uh, you've covered. And we'll get into some of the personality dynamics in, in, in a minute here. But how much of what's gone on in the first half of the session seems to you more theater than actually attempts to get things passed? Well, every session is theater, right? right? Like there's always like kind of show hearings for bills that probably aren't going to make it anywhere or are going to get amended into doing like nothing what they were trying to do. I think pharmaceutical, Megan knows a lot more about the bill and the issue than I do. There's but a lot of substance in that pharmaceutical. There is a lot there's of substance. no question about that. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's one of the cross-cutting issues because the opioid em epidemic affects everyone. It doesn't matter if you live in a Republican or Democratic district. Right. So that's a hard one, I think, for Republicans and Democrats to swallow who... You know, we did the story on farmer contributions. I know that's not all of it, but they give a significant amount of money. It's a lot of the same lobbying faces who are representing those companies. Um, but, you know, it's hard to go back to your constituents and say, like, you know, I don't think your drug is on. Like, ins I don't think insulin should be price controlled. Stuff like that where it's been around forever. So I think that's like a, it's a winning issue for them. It avoids this trap of them pushing bills that undo things Republicans passed in 2015 which the governor doesn't like, which every Republican in the legislature who was there or got elected is going to hate. So things like changing prevailing wage on construction projects, which is like a really high minimum wage for um, public works, things like modifying collective bargaining deals with unions, like that stuff that has a much harder path to getting passed. You know, you, you know better than anyone weird stuff happens in like the last 48 hours of the session. So maybe some of it will break out. But I think the pharmaceutical thing is a weighty issue that they can likely get passed with bipartisan support. It depends on like how the issue kind of plays out and what sort of things come to the table. So, so halfway through, let's talk about some of, some of the uh, political dynamics that exist. And both of you, I think, have gone to these. Let, let's talk about the assembly leadership uh, versus the the Senate leadership. The assembly has been a lot calmer in terms of Paul Anderson, the minority leader, and Speaker Jason Frierson, then majority leader in the Senate. Aaron Ford and, and minority leader Michael Roberson, who wants to eat as much scenery as he possibly can, uh, it seems like. So, R Riley, talk about those differing dynamics. As I said, you and Megan have 
Paul Anderson, to his credit, has done these regular media availabilities, trying to maintain, like, hey, we're relevant, and the Republicans in the minority who, who have uh, uh, only 15 members in, in the assembly. And then you have Roberson, who will routinely make outlandish statements or will come into the press room to talk to all of us just to show that, that, that he is still relevant. Talk about the differing dynamics in both of the houses and how that's affecting things. So Michelle, who's not here, her and I worked together at the Associated Press last session. And last session, I told her, like, I want to go cover the assembly because that's the fun house. So, like, that's where you know where nothing's going to happen. This session, it's different. Uh, I told her, like, I'm going to go to the Senate because I don't know what Michael Robertson's going to say every day. So it's been a very different relationship in terms of both bicameral, meaning, you know, how the houses kind of operate. The Senate's been, like, much more unpredictable, a lot of outlandish four speeches. Um, I don't know if it's gotten as crazy. It will probably get crazier as the nights get longer and people's tempers get shorter. Uh, but the assembly's been much calmer. I think uh, Speaker Jason Frierson and the Republican leader, Paul Anderson, both get along pretty well. I don't think um, either of them, and if I'm wrong, I'm going to eat a lot of crow on this, have like really higher political aspirations. They're both kind of dedicated to getting policy done. I don't know if you can say that about leadership in the Senate. They're both kind of looking onward and upward past the session, what they want to do politically. So there's, I think, a little bit more theater going on in that body. Um, well, you mentioned the outlanders, as you describe it, floor speeches. And and what's been seen in the Senate, you mentioned Michael Roberson and, and Aaron Ford. Aaron Ford is widely believed to be thinking about running statewide, as is Roberson. Roberson maybe for lieutenant governor. Uh, uh, Ford maybe for attorney general or, or, or something else. When you say outlanders, floor speeches... The Senate, it seems to me, has brought up all these kinds of things, like the ERA, where there have been some very dramatic floor speeches and some other things. Is 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 the talk, is the observation that there's a lot of political stunts going on to try to create wedge issues for the 2018 election, or is there more to it than that? I think a lot of the big accomplishments Democrats have had have been more symbolic, per se. Like, I think Equal Rights Amendment is a great symbolic victory for women, for Democrats, but, um, you know, it expired. I don't think, you know, a Congress controlled by Paul Ryan and a presidency held by Donald Trump is going to, you know, go out of their way to ratify the ERA. So that's a symbolic, it's, symbolism is important. Um, a lot of people showed up, a lot of people are very passionate about that, but Republicans are equally, you know, passionate about that. And Roberson brought a lot of this up in his floor speech, like he got kind of into the legal weeds in it, but, you know, he's trying to, I think, solidify more of a conservative base. And I reported on a story ahead of session that he brought in um, a man named Dan Burdish, who was an ally of an uh, activist named Chuck Muth, who's kind of... These are far-right people. Yeah, conservative Roberson, firebrand. Roberson was the guy who helped get through a $1.5 billion tax increase, and now he's trying to get his his his, uh, his uh, far-right bona fides back, so he hires a guy, Dan Burdish, that you're mentioning. Yeah, so there's... You know, the pendulum swings back, especially when you're in the minority. But I think he's definitely, you know, shoring up support. I was telling someone today that I go on Facebook, I go on Twitter, I go on Instagram because I'm a millennial. And when I see you sponsored ads... You are a social ads, media creature, Riley. That's me. Are you not? I am. Yeah, I'm the guru. Uh, <laughs> that's it. Exactly. <laughs> no, right. but when I go on and you see targeted ads, like, I don't see any for Aaron Ford. I don't see any for any other Democrats. What I see is sign my petition to stop sanctuary cities, support Michael Roberson. Yeah. Or... I'm supporting businesses. Help me. My name's Ben Kiekeffer. So they're... They're running campaigns. They're running campaigns during session. And, you know, both sides do it. You can't blame one side or another. But I think they're going about it in somewhat of a more obvious way. But that's part of being in the minority, right? Is like 
you have the freedom to just throw bombs. You have the freedom to say whatever you want, send out outlandish press releases on Friday afternoons. But if you're in the majority, you got to govern and you got to pass stuff and you got to get a budget approved. Um, not saying the minority doesn't have to do that. They don't have bills, but there's a lot more pressure, I think, being in the majority and then having to balance the political side as well. There's quite a contrast, though, Megan, is there not, in terms of what's going on in the assembly, in terms of what Riley described. It's much more sedate. You don't see these big floor fights. You don't see the tension between the two leaders that you're seeing in the Senate, right? Definitely. And I think, again, not having, you know, been here before, you know, some of it was new to me, but I remember I was doing a profile on Speaker Frierson back before the session began, and just from that profile, I kind of had a sense that it would go like this. You know, everyone said that he's, you know, a consensus builder. He just likes to listen. He's all about having conversations. You know, you'll hear him when you when you talk to him. He'll say, we need to have a conversation. We need to have a discussion about this. And that's kind of just the way, you know, he is. I think that's just sort of his leadership style. And that's what, you know, people who I interviewed for that profile said. So I think, you know, having that in combination with just, you know, who, you know, uh, Paul Anderson is that sort of provides an interesting dynamic that, you know, they're, they're not sort of this um, oil and water in the way that, you know, I, I think we've seen that that Ford and Roberson have been a little bit. Yeah, come to think of it, I think like the most tense moment I've seen between two assembly members was between Ira Hansen, who's a Republican, and James Oscarson, who's also a Republican. They were in committee the other day and Oscarson had a bill to basically prohibit using official stationery for campaign purposes. And Ira started yelling about it because Ira had campaigned actively against Oscarskin after the tax vote in 2015. And like they got into it and they started like going after each other name by name in the middle of a committee hearing. And that was like the most tense, most aggressive thing I've seen on the assembly side. And that was two Republicans going after each other. And, uh, and, and it's, well, it's fun and, and it's, it brings up the memories of that election when, when Ira Hansen was trying to defeat all of these Republicans we thought were awful for voting for the tax increase, that's the minority fighting among the, amongst the minority. The interesting thing, it seems to me, Megan, is that Jason Frierson, while he is exactly as you described him, he's got 26 other Democrats. And so uh, he has, he's got to herd a lot of cats, does he not? And it's a fairly diverse caucus. You have Irene, Irene Bustamante-Adams, who wanted to be speaker and isn't. You have T uh, Teresa Benitez-Thompson, who obviously is very ambitious, but she seems to be getting along with the speaker very well. So you have some dynamics that are kind of beneath the surface there, but at some point, he's going to have to herd all those cats, right? Sure, and I think that's that's sort of the big question is, you know, who's good at what and how, when do you let people have their time to shine and how do you sort of, you know, take that massive caucus and, you know, direct them so that you're doing something cohesive instead of having all these limbs that are doing, you know, different things. I think sort of an example of that, and it's, you know, not just on the assembly side, but Riley and I this week, we went through all the different election-related bills. And I think just looking at the sheer number of different measures there 30 are. 30 or so, right? Yeah, there were like, I think almost 30, yeah. um, specifically related to elections. And many of those, you know, overlapped. They had, you know, similar provisions about having, you know, uh, locations on election day where anyone can go to vote and, you know, changes to early voting and um, allowing 16 and 17-year-olds to pre-register to vote and automatic voter registration. And you see all these overlapping measures and you know it's sort of everyone coming in with their own ideas about what this piece of legislation that they're sponsoring should look like but now it's sort of you know how do you take all those pieces of legislation and turn that into sort of one cohesive policy or what pieces of it do you want to keep what parts don't you want to keep and it's sort of like throwing everything at the wall just to see what sticks and I think at some point I mean now that we're coming up on deadlines obviously there's a lot of time left until the, the end of the session but sort of figuring out 
what you know what Democrats want that want to look like you know whether it's election policy or something else you mentioned something that, that now that we have a few minutes left and let's look ahead uh, these deadlines the first major deadline Riley of, of, of the session is coming up next week on Friday it's the deadline for bills having to be out of the first house the house where they they, they, they originated of first committee first committee excuse me first committee the first house is is, is, is a little bit after that. So let's talk about that. Um, there are hundreds of bills out there. The Democrats are going to have no choice at this deadline but to kill rafts of bills, right? Hundreds of bills are going to disappear by next Friday, right? Yeah. So we were actually looking at this a little earlier, and like they've introduced more than 1,000 bills and resolutions, right? Obviously, not all of them have gotten a hearing because we've had a lot of like really easy Fridays where everyone's done at 2 p.m. Um, so a lot of them are going to die. Most of them will probably be like Republican measures. They're really... They kind of backloaded the schedule. Um, I think I just saw a news story pop up on my phone that they've passed the least number of bills this session compared to like it's 2013. And then like this is the second worst um, in recent memory by day 60. Or best by some people. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's going to be a ton of hearings next week. It'll be interesting to see what gets like left off, what gets left on. If these bills that the attorney general brought forward that aren't getting a hearing ever end up getting a hearing, what they amend into certain things, whether a lot of these like um, – real progressive like yardsticks like minimum wage is a big one none of those bills have gotten a committee vote yet um interesting thing that happened today was they exempted like 40 bills or so um for people who don't know you can exempt bills from legislative deadlines if they have a fiscal impact it's a way to kind of like keep things in play till the very end of session um so well, let's just explain this people because most people listening they're going to think that oh this process is arcane i don't understand it so let's, that's true <laughs> let's elaborate a little bit on this they can if they can put a fiscal note on a bill they can essentially say okay this doesn't have to abide by the that by the deadlines that are set in the rules of the legislature and they can last until the end correct yes fiscal notes for those who don't know if you go on the legislative website you can see where state agencies uh, like school districts groups like that say this bill will cost me xxx uh, to implement here's why so if it has one of those they're called eligible for exemption where the whoever like is in charge of that house uh, can determine that we want to keep these exempt we want to keep them kind of in place till the very end of session so There'll be a lot of bills that die, but there'll be some that get like this life raft of an exemption to, to keep hanging around till the very end. You know, it's interesting, Megan, because, uh, and I've noticed this a little bit, we, we do on, on Nevada Independent, we do these daily previews of what's coming up uh, in hearings. It seems to me when, when I read what you guys are producing now every day, there's much more, uh, there's, there's, it's busier. I guess I'll put it that way. There, there, there's more interesting bills. There's more substantive kinds of things going on as we come up toward uh, the, the, these deadlines. Do we feel a sense of urgency going into this deadline? Because the talk early in the session was they're not doing anything, it's slow, we hear this all the time. Are we picking up going into this a week from now, this deadline, that there's more of a sense of urgency that important stuff is going to get decided? I think so. I mean, I think even just, you know, figuring out what we're going to cover on a daily basis. I know, I think yesterday, you know, there was like there were three different hearings we all wanted to be at and we were all at a different hearing and you know Michelle was covering these education bills you know late at night and I was covering this Medicaid for all hearing and 
Riley was covering energy issues and there's just so much going on that it's sort of, we're, we're getting pulled in different directions. And I think it's, you know, getting to the point where, you know, with three of us, we can sort of, we can cover quite a few issues and quite a few different committee hearings at once, but it's even getting to the point where, you know, it, it would be nice if we had, you know, a fourth person or something like that, just because there's so much to well, do. I have to hire somebody else. <laughs> That's what you're telling me? Yeah, I figured I'd break it to you now. <laughs> it's interesting because one of the things you just brought up, though, that's really interesting, uh, and this goes to another dynamic that's going on during the session, the Medicaid for All. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of bills out there, mm -hmm. right, that want to expand Medicaid even more so, make, make it available to everybody. There's a reaction to what the federal government is doing, not just on pot, as we talked about earlier, but on something like the, 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 the supposed repeal, when it does come, if it ever comes, of the Affordable Care Act. There are a lot of bills, and in, including the mm -hmm. one for Medicaid, to try to react against what the federal government has done more so than in any session I've been around for, uh, and I've been around for a, a little bit longer than you guys, uh, that, that they're saying, okay, the federal government might do something, let's try to preempt them, right? Sure, yeah, there's there's a lot of reaction to that. And, you know, thinking about the, this Medicaid for All bill, you know, that it's, it's partly a reaction to that, but partly also just wanting to expand the universe of healthcare options, you know, giving people another option. And for, for those who don't know how, how this would work in Nevada, essentially the idea is that, you know, if, if I say didn't want to buy into my employer's healthcare system, I could choose instead to pay a certain premium that would be set every year, and I could choose to purchase Medicaid coverage. So unlike people who are already covered under the Medicaid program, get these um, federal subsidies, money from the federal government and the state to pay for their um, healthcare, uh, you, you would have to pay in. So it would just be like any other health insurance plan, but it would be another option. And the idea is that it would be a cheaper option um, that would allow people, you know, access to healthcare, which a lot of people, you know, don't have. Um, and there's concerns about that. If the ACA goes away, you know, what does that mean for the future of healthcare coverage? And we've seen all these other bills too, you know, trying to codify some portions of the Affordable Care Act, whether it's, you know, certain preventative care that the Affordable Care Act requires, putting that into state law. Um, a lot of the Democratic legislators are essentially trying to backstop the ACA by putting portions of the ACA into state law so that if it's repealed, all that still exists in Nevada and it doesn't change anything for the insurers that would, you know, be theoretically doing what they're already doing. So it doesn't change anything for them, but, you know, would help in the event of an ACA repeal if some of these provisions go away. So, Riley, we just have a few minutes left. Let, let, let's talk a little bit about, as the session goes on, these deadlines are, 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 are coming. And you hear a lot, there's a lot of, and you guys hear the same chatter that, that I do because we talk to the same chatterers, but... Basically, this is an anti-business session. The Democrats are trying to, uh, you know, get back at all the businesses that got what all they that they wanted. And you also have the other dynamic: is how are they going to close this down? What is the strategy by the Democrats as we're coming up uh, to, to 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 these deadlines? How does this all resolve itself if it does? Well, John, all those lobbyists are right. Democrats want a full socialist takeover of <laughs> Nevada. Saying, exactly. That's what they're proposing. <laughs> exactly. It's all true. Uh, no, I think um, you'll see. Like, I think. Jason Fireson, the Assembly Speaker, and Aaron Ford, the Senate leader, um, they're both relatively moderate. They're going to support progressive things. They're going to have hearings. They're going to push what they can. But at the end of the day, there's only so much you can do with divided government. I know Governor Sandoval might get some flack from the right for pass, passing a tax increase to go up $1.5 billion, but he still has his conservative bona fides. He wants this to be his legacy session. ESAs are going to be educational savings accounts are going to be a big uh you know, point coming into the He's very put sixty million dollars in to try to restart this program that essentially was put on hold by the state supreme court. Yeah, 
so that's going to be a big thing. Republicans have their goals, but as they've all said to us, they're just playing defense this session. So what I'm looking for over the next 60 days is to see like what kind of victories they can get that are symbolic and what kind of victories they can get that are actually policy-driven. So something like the ERA, while it's a great symbolism, while it's a great you know rally-the-base move, it's a symbolic win. Something like the pharmaceutical bill that Megan was talking about earlier, that's a strong policy thing. You have to really get in the weeds to understand what it's doing, but it supposedly is going to help people in their day-to-day lives pay for drugs at a cheaper cost. So the, that balance between finding those two, what, what they can get out of the governor, what they can get out of Republicans, I think is going to be the big question over the next 60 days. Let me let you have the final word here, Megan, uh, on this podcast. And, and what Riley's saying is right, and he mentions the pharma bill in, in, in the sense that that's a very substantive measure. Um, whether you think it's a good thing or not. Um, the Democrats are going to support that in the end, I would think, and they're going to have to try to get Republican votes, and they're going to have to try to get the governor to sign it. Do you get a sense that there is a strategic thinking that's going on out there or that they're just hoping that they can create enough momentum by the end to get the governor to sign this, to get the Republicans, especially in the assembly where there seems to be more bipartisanship going on, to sign on for this? I think the question is what the legislation will look like in its final form. You know, thinking about, for instance, like we talked about Senator Kinsella's um, pharmaceutical bill. I mean, she said that she, you know, wants to work with the pharmaceutical industry. You know, she, she said, come to me with your suggestion. Let's find something that's workable. Let's let's figure out something that works. Um, you know, and it's sometimes that's not always possible. So, you know, there's possible possibility that that could happen. But, you know, when you think about something like prescription drug costs, you know, sort of everyone agrees that prescription drug costs are really high. You know, even the pharmaceutical industry, you know, will agree to that to a certain extent. So the question then is, you know, what do we do? And I think when you have everyone sort of universally ag- agreeing this is a problem, it's easier to come to a solution versus, you know, some of these other, like we mentioned, sort of political partisan issues where it's sort of, this is my position and I'm on the other side and there's no way we'll, we'll ever come to a consensus. I think when people agree about the problem, you know, hopefully there's a policy solution that they can find somewhere there in the middle, you know, that can be as amenable as possible to, to all parties. Well, I hope uh, in our first podcast here that we've given everybody a, an idea, Riley and Megan, of what this crazy process that the, uh, of the legislature is really uh, all about. Megan, thanks for coming yeah, uh, on tonight. Riley, thank you too. And uh, this is all the time we have for our first Indie Matters podcast. We want to know, though, what you guys out there think. If you have ideas, criticism, or yes, even praise, except for Riley, email us at ideas at thenevadaindy.com. That's ideas at thenevadaindy.com. Please check out our site if you haven't already, the Nevada Independent. It's thenevadaindependent.com. I want to thank again Riley and Megan for making themselves available to be here tonight and uh, letting the boss guide them through our initial podcast. We're we're thrilled to be here. I'm John Ralston, the editor of Nevada Independent. Thanks for being here on Indie Matters.